welcome to the Corey Walsh podcast. I don't know what I'm going to name it at this point, but I'm going to have a creative team, I think, of some people on it. I'm not that creative myself, but today we're going to take what we usually had with a two-person show, and I think based on scheduling issues with a lot of people, we're going to try to turn this into a solo gig. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, having no one to really converse with for a back and forth should be interesting to listen to. So the first few episodes might be a little bit rusty. But I think that if I get on the right track about how this should work, I won't need to depend on other people's scheduling to release these. So this can just, it won't, I don't think I'm going to have a scheduling type format to start. I think this is going to be more of just trying to figure out how this will work. It's going to stay on the water cooler check down feed. I'm thinking I might change it from the water cooler check down, mostly because explaining water cooler check down to a lot of people and what it means really just is a. Uh, it, it sounds more stupid the more I explain it to people. But anyway, we're going to be talking NFL today. Um, we're going to be talking about some of the new coaching stuff that's been going on. Uh, and then we're just going to dive right into the wild card weekend. It's not going to be an action-packed episode, considering I'm starting out and wanting to see how this will go. Uh, so I think right now we're just going to jump straight into the headlines. I, also, there will be no articles on the extended cut for a little bit, seeing as we're going to try to also figure out how that's going to work. I think it's going to all come together at some point. 2020 is going to be the year of the extended cut group as a whole. I have good faith in that. Um, so today we're going to start with the headlines. Uh, Ron Rivera, the riverboat head rides to Washington, is the big news of this coaching carousel for right now, except for as of this morning, which we are recording on a Friday, January 3rd, around 5-ish. Uh, Ron Rivera is taking the riverboat to Washington, which was greeted by Dan Snyder introducing them <laughs> as being on Thanksgiving, even though it was January 2nd when Ron was introduced. Just really emphasizes how this organization really lacks structure. Dan Snyder for years has been the laughing stock of the uh, – the NFL, especially in the owners' rooms, there are reports that say he's probably the most isolated owner in those owner meetings. And you could kind of tell due to the fact that he doesn't seem to have any good relationships with his coaches. I mean, over the past 20 years, since 2000, they've had nine coaches, and four of those alone have been one-year coaches. It started in the decade with Norv Turner ending it from he ran up until 2000 where Terry Robiziski was his interim head coach and they didn't bring him back. Then they went down to Marty Schottenheimer, Steve Spurrier, Joe Gibbs, Jim Zorn, the Mike Shanahan era, Jay Gruden, who was actually one of the longest head coaches they've ever had in that span, Bill Callahan, and now introduced as of yesterday, the new head coach, Ron Rivera. The thing about Ron Rivera that on paper – I can see why they hired him was that they needed structure in that organization and they were not getting that from Jay Gruden and they certainly weren't getting that from Bill Callahan who they let go and has who has also said he has no interest in returning to the Redskins which how many coaches who become interim head coaches actually end up going back to the team I mean it's kind of like we didn't choose you but hey you know if you want you can come back and make less money than we you were making as the new head coach I think the only person I could think of that actually recently that was an interim and stayed on the roster and the coaching staff was uh, the special teams coach for Seattle, and that's because he's known as one of the top special teams coaches, and it's very rare a special teams coach gets a, a head coaching job. The one I can think of most recently is jo uh, John Harbaugh, 
from Baltimore. But besides that, you don't really see any of any other special teams coordinators. So the discipline that Ron Rivera is supposed to add should be interesting because he had that Carolina team along with Dave Gettleman in pretty top form from the moment he had them. He is the most winningest coach in Carolina Panthers history. That's not saying much, seeing as they haven't been around that long, maybe like 25, 20 years. But in the nine seasons that Rivera spent there, they won 76, 63, and 1. And they went, they went to the Super Bowl and played that Denver team in a game where Cam Newton decided. If, if they, were, they were one snap away if Cam Newton decided to just jump on the football and save their season. So they were just staring at it. They would have had a chance of beating a team that was basically Peyton Manning was their worst offensive player. And they were being dragged by that awesome defense. The one that John Elway, I guarantee you, still thinks he has today. Um, he won coach of the year twice in 2013 and 2015, which is an important point to make because Ron Rivera is only one of four coaches in the last 30 years to win multiple AP NFL coach of the year awards. And the company that he is with is pretty incredible for that. You got Dan Reeves, Bruce Arians, and Bill Belichick. Honestly, that that's pretty impressive that only two, he is one of four and you wouldn't ever think that especially based on the record and like the, just the persona you have, like with Rivera, you always think he's a very solid coach. You always knew that he would find another job because he was so highly respected. There are thousands of players that he's had and you haven't heard one negative thing come from any of those players. Now, Josh Norman in Washington is basically begging for his job back. He's telling Ron, he's like, Oh, if Ron gets here, this would be awesome. And then Ron will get there and be like, Oh, it's awesome to be here. Yeah. Uh, Josh, you cost like 24 million a year and you are five years past your prime. And he probably will not come back. Um, Ron Rivera is also known as a defensive coach. The thing that's interesting about that is that Washington ranked 27th in the total in the NFL in total yards per game for defense. They were 18th in the pass and 31st in rushing. Um, they have 48 million dollars in cap space. I would hope, considering they drafted Dwayne Haskins, I don't care how raw of a talent he is. You're not gonna. You have to give him your best chance. They have Sims and McLaurin who are pretty decent wide receivers, but I would say they should add at least one more weapon with some of that cap space to give Haskins a good chance. Eric Ebron would be an interesting move for them now that he was recently, the Colts told him he won't come back, and he's a Pro Bowl tight end when he's fully healthy. He's been pretty solid in the past three years. Just injuries are the thing with him that could keep him back. Uh, they should probably get a secondary because their best secondary player is uh, uh, Collins, from the who they got from the Giants last week, season in free agency and he's a run first type safety. So that doesn't really help, especially considering he, uh, according to the uh, stats, he's basically been a non-factor for them. I think the thing that's also really interesting about Ron Rivera, this hire is that even though he is known as a defensive head coach, when I looked back and did the research on how Carolina defenses have been under Rivera's tenure, you'd be surprised of how little they were ever in the top 10 in defense. It's pretty insane because you think with all the weapons they've had in the years, they've had Norman, they've had Keekly, they've also had uh, a few good safeties. They all, they just, they were always known as a defensive team, but they never ranked in the top 10, which is concerning when you're known as a defensive coach, but your your offense always ranked higher than your defense. I don't know if that if Rivera. I can't speak for if Rivera really had his hand in the offensive system or it was like a Belichick type approach, where he just stands back and lets the offensive coordinators do their work. But if he was just focusing on the defense alone, 
I wouldn't expect this Redskins defense to really turn it around under Rivera, but I would expect them to finally have a structure. It should probably be a hellacious experience for Rivera being under Dan Snyder. I know they like looked buddy-buddy in that uh, first interview, but I really wouldn't see a way in which that Rivera doesn't question why he didn't join another more capable team with a more solid infrastructure because he also has to wait for a GM to be hired now that they fired Allen but at the same time I just I wonder how he could have been on a team like Cleveland or a team like the Giants I would expect him to, he he really screamed Giants coach to me so I was I was kind of surprised that he didn't just wait it's not like that I can't think of many coaches that were waiting and ho- like hoping for that Redskins job to be open it was open the day that Black Monday started all right, an absolute kitchen fire. Uh, talking, of course, about the Cleveland Browns and Freddie Kitchens. Kitchens was let go probably like two hours before <laughs> or after the season ended. And I can honestly tell you, I don't think anyone was genuinely shocked that he was let go. Um, the Browns, if you lived under a rock, were supposed to have Super Bowl expectations by their own fan base and by people with more realistic expectations They were supposed to make the playoffs due to the talent they had, an expectation that Baker Mayfield would take a step to the next level after a promising second half of the season, which was mostly against garbage teams that didn't make the playoffs, but also that Kitchens could... Kitchens and Baker's relationship was supposed to help propel Baker to become a better player. This offense was supposed to be more dynamic with trades that they made when they traded for Odell Beckham, sending Jarvis Lamb... Jabril Peppers and a first-round pick away to the Giants in return. They got Odell Beckham, who is known as a character, a head case, but he is extremely talented and would was expected to help give Baker a ton of weapons. They came into the season with Njoku, Jarvis Landry, Chubb. They were going to get Kareem Hunt at Week 10, and it imploded harder than almost anyone could have probably expected, except for the analysts that always knew this would happen and that's basically Colin Coward um so Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield are really the issues with this Browns team I decided they took this team from potential playoff berth to an absolute disaster first off Freddie Kitchens was not at all I know this is everyone has said this but it is like you can't think of a different way to phrase it he was extremely underprepared to take the reins of being a head coach in this league which is no fault to him, seeing as I don't even think he thought he had a chance for the job because he went from offensive line coach to offensive interim offensive coordinator when they fired Haley to head coach. I think I would have given him another year as an offensive coordinator before deciding that he had the the ability to like take over an entire team when he could just learn how to take over an entire offense. The, uh, John Dorsey was also fired from this whole thing, and I honestly think that was a big reason why he was fired, was deciding to trust in a coach that didn't really have any form of head coaching experience. It was a really extremely weird move, and I think the way that you could tell that he didn't – he really wanted Baker to shine, and you can tell that from the way they underused Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb for, is basically a top-five running back in the league already in year two. And he ranked as the number one running back in the NFL with break breakaway runs this year. But the Browns ranked 22nd in run plays per game. 
I don't know if you need to be a mathematician or like need to unlock a different part of your brain to realize that when your running back is number one in the league with breakaway runs, almost won the rushing title of Derrick Henry, didn't absolutely go off, even though he was incredibly underused, that you would think I should run the ball a little more. I know there are I have a thousand friends who owned Nick Chubb in fantasy football, and they all would say that that when he got the minute like the touches, he would absolutely explode in games. And Freddie Kitchens probably just wanted to try to work out the kinks of Baker because he knew his key to keeping this job was to make Baker develop a little more every week. And honestly, I saw no progression really at all. Baker became an increasingly worse quarterback. He fluctuated between having a decent game and a non-decent game. But he was hired for the sole purpose of having Baker Mayfield develop. I mean, Baker Mayfield, in the nine weeks 9 through 17, under Kitchens as the offensive coordinator, was 7th in total points, 3rd in positive rates, play rates. And he had 21 touchdowns and 9 interceptions. And everything looked like he was flying high for Baker Mayfield. You thought that he was maybe better than Darnold. There were people who were like, oh, no question. Baker, accurate. You, the Browns were smart to take him. The Patriots were supposed to trade up for him. You knew this was going to happen. He is a stud. He had all the commercials, all the hype. He had the Hulu ads. He had whatever ad you were watching on Sunday. Baker was probably in at least one commercial break. But it didn't matter because it was a weird offseason that was set up for this Baker disaster. I'm not putting all the blame on Baker. I think that it's just hard. Second year gives a teams a lot of film to look at you. But at the same time, if your offensive coordinator – it's your head coach and your head coach can't even handle a locker room. Never mind the fact handle helping a young quarterback develop. It's going to be a rough start. They traded their starting offensive ta- offensive lineman uh, Zeitler for Vernon with the giants in the off season, which if you were helping a young quarterback, the one thing you do with a young quarterback is build up an offensive line. So they don't get the crap beat out of them on every possession and Baker Every week had his looked like a deer in headlights and did not know how to handle this pressure. The kid is small. I wouldn't say he's extremely athletic either. He has a very accurate arm, which is what he was known for. But under pressure, he is not good. I get the potential pairing of Vernon and Miles Garrett. It was probably like good on paper. Probably should have been good. The bad news is that Vernon is like three years past his prime and on a terrible contract that the Giants signed him to when they spent all that money on like Janoris Jenkins, Nate Soldier, and um, and Vernon. It didn't work for them. Why would you think that the defense would get any better by adding an aging Vernon to their roster? And the positives would never outweigh the damage that Zeitler's departure did to that offensive line. The Browns, over this one season, spent offseason workouts, training camp, all trying to find the answer at right guard, and they never did. It just does not make sense. Baker then, due to this, had a horrendous offensive line, and it really did not help because the season showed that he can't. He hasn't adjusted to pressure, which makes sense. You gave him a, dece- a half-decent offensive line last year, and he was good, and they're like, oh, you know what? He could probably overwhelm. He could be a little better than this. He can probably take it to the next level. We probably can trade for some weapons to build the team around Baker Mayfield. But once they did that, the O-line ranked 30th in the NFL in protection rate. Baker Mayfield also ranked 28th in the NFL in true passer rating with a 78.2. He was 50th in the NFL in 41 with 41% red zone completion. Like I know 50th sounds like dramatic. There's probably backups in there that had one drive. So I would 50th, though, is not great. That means he's on paper, if we're really looking at it, he is worse than 
31 starters and 19 backups. That's pretty bad. I don't, I mean, you can like argue that the 50th probably throws in one of them, but the fact that 50, it's not even like he's like 34, so it's like you can make an argument. He is probably at the very, very bottom. I would say bottom two in the NFL if you counted all the starters. 40% of his passes were under were completed under pressure. And then he had 65% of his passes that were completed in a clean pocket. I mean, 65 in terms of the NFL today is like a little above okay, but 40% is just not not that good. I know under pressure, a lot of quarterbacks' numbers aren't that great, but I still would argue that this is not like something that I would be like, oh, 40% is, is a pretty solid. I, I don't think so. Right As of right now, the way that Baker looks – People are saying if you trade him to a different team, he would be better. I don't see how that's possible. The kid has a mouth, which, when you, like he said, he said it best in that quote he said around like midseason where he basically said, not going to exactly quote it, but he essentially said that, hey, you know, you like me when I have when I run my mouth and we win because you say I'm edgy and I like have a good spirit and I'm competitive, but when we're losing, you say I'm like a douche and that – you just don't like me, and I'm a dick to my teammates. That's not true. You have to pick one side. Okay, I'm picking my side based on how you're playing. Sure, but at the same time, you can't keep running your mouth if you're not gonna, if you're not improving or at least owning up to stuff. He would blame people all the time. You very rarely heard Baker Mayfield own to the, own to the press. Hey, I lost this game. This one's on me. Might be character issues. I think character issues probably can be worked out at some point. The kid's still young. It's not like he's like 30 and throwing all these picks and being like, ah, you know, you you didn't say this when I was 23. Because if Baker Mayfield plays like this, we won't see him when he's 30. He's too small to even if he if he doesn't perform, he he probably won't be a backup in this league. Because backups really depend on character. I mean, the, most of the best backups in the NFL are those that are willing to mentor. They're older. They're, they have good character, good work ethic. I'm not saying Baker doesn't have good work ethic. I just don't think that he has much much legs left if he does this for like two more years. The But now we'll talk about Kitchens for a minute because Freddie Kitchens was – Baker wanted Freddie Kitchens, so they put Freddie Kitchens in a position to get him ultimately to be the best he can be with the best – wide receivers that they could possibly have at the time with Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham, who both at points were Pro Bowl wide receivers. But under this season, if you were voting based on stats, neither of them would make it. Uh, the, the the thing that everyone talks into the ground about Freddie Kitchens is that he never had that team disciplined. I 100% agree. They were fourth in the NFL on penalties. I don't know if you remember week one, they had 18. Like, when's the last time you ever heard of 18 penalties in a game? And they only, they still finished fourth, which is so, it's it's incredible that team, it was Tampa. But a team that got way more penalties than them, and they didn't. They got 152 penalties throughout the season, which ranked fourth. And that was an average of basically nine and a half penalties a game. If I was a Browns fan, I feel like my TV screen would be shattered from me just being so enraged that this team can't stay can't stay disciplined for more than a, like a 3 minute in-game stretch. So the replacements that have been rumored to take this job were Mike McCarthy and Urban Meyer. They 
apparently are already out of the Josh McDaniels sweepstakes by them. They decided themselves they don't want to because they have some baseball analytics guy who is going to run their coaching search. It doesn't matter who your coach is at this point. I mean, you seem to lack any confidence in any coach you have, if even if they're terrible or good. I mean, who's going to sign up to be a Browns coach if you know you're going to be fired in a year? Can't think of many people, especially the ones that they're looking at. These are coaches that they were fired in their first year. They are extremely qualified head coaches. And as of today, it was uh, switching subjects to coaching. We're going to talk about the Cowboys for a quick minute because I originally wrote notes saying – how they were on the fence of Jason Garrett being fired, and it was it was said today that Jason Garrett has been let go. Thank God for Cowboys fans. That's all I have to say. Like I know America's team in air quotes, Dallas Cowboys. A lot of people hate them, um, but like you, with the talent that they have, you would really want them to at least be competitive, not really be in this mediocre. 8-8, eight 9-7, and 10-6 eight, and, seven, ten and six group with the one outlier being the first year Dak and Elliott came into the league. In six and a half years as the head coach, Jason Garrett is 59-48, and 48, which I know that looks great on paper, but like you take that 13-3 and three season out of there, it's just been average for like a majority of the time. He had two outlier seasons, in my opinion. He had the Dak and Ezekiel Elliott year, and then he had the Tony Romo, DeMarco Murray, Des Bryant year where it looked like DeMarco Murray was Emmett Smith reincarnated. Uh that was in, that record I stated earlier 59 and 48. That's also including the playoffs. Divisional round is the highest point they've ever been to. I know you're like there'll be some Cowboys fans that could be like, "Oh, well, the catch if if they just called it, we would be farther in." And uh, yeah, okay. I guess if we're talking hypotheticals, you could have won a Super Bowl every year. That's at least what they would argue based on how delusional home fans are of their own team sometimes. I know being a Patriot fan that we have some delusional fans, but every fan base does. But the way I look at it is the Cowboys have elite offensive talent and elite defensive talent. I do not see how on earth this team decided that – how did this take three days to get rid of Jason Garrett? What what? on earth was Jerry Jones doing to himself to think, huh, you know, these past few seasons have been kind of disappointing, but, you know, one of these years, it's just going to turn around. I saw on Fox Sports 1 yesterday that an insider said that Jerry Jones took this long because he had an emotional attachment to Jason Garrett, kind of thought of him as a son in ways because he's been with the Cowboys for so long. He really felt that there was a chance that Jason would succeed somewhere else and he he couldn't stand to watch that happen so he would have to be he he was basically emotionally and professionally conflicted because he knew professionally you had to let him go thank god professionalism came out in the end i don't know who was the final word in Jason uh and Jerry Jones's ear but i it was a good good ear <laughs> to let speak um, the cow, like the likely fits once again, I think would be Urban Meyer. Greg Roman would be really good for them. I think I'm just trying to think of players that would unlock Dak because I think Dak gets a bad rap as a coach, uh, as a quarterback. Sorry, that Dak is pretty good. I mean, people everywhere. Dak is probably one of the most popular quarterbacks that gets hate on, and I really, I, I guess, like if you're expecting him to be Pat Mahomes, he's not Pat Mahomes, but he is still. I would argue. Not thinking about this list prior, I would probably say top eight or nine in the league. 
in terms of what he does. How often do you lose a game because of Dak? I mean, I guess you could say that that Eagles game they just played, he might have lost them it. At the same time, do you know how many catches were dropped in that game? I don't know. I mean, so they're going to have to decide between Cooper and Prescott, and if you really think about it, they're going to sign Prescott. It's easier to find an elite wide receiver than it is to find like a pretty decent quarterback. You know how many teams are drafting quarterbacks every year in the draft just hoping one of them will stick? A ton. I think another pipe dream for them, though, would be to get Jim Harbaugh from Michigan. I think that's a big name. It fits Cowboys lore to have him. I think I could see Harbaugh getting itch to start winning in the NFL again. I know everyone thinks he should be out as the Michigan coach, but that's a different topic for a different day. As a whole, I'm very glad that Jason Garrett is gone. I hope that he I guarantee you he'll get a job somewhere, but I really don't think he deserves any elite head coaching job or coaching job. I would I would hope that his career takes a little vacation. <laughs> And this is something I just wanted to throw in really quick. This won't be a long topic. Uh, the Dolphins fired offensive coordinator Chad O'Shea. And the thing that I think is really weird about that is that they hired Chan Gailey instead. And that only points to the fact that he has had really good rapport with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And if the Dolphins, I swear to God, are delusional enough to think that Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to help them propel them to a playoff, any playoff game next year, under Chan Gailey are sorely mistaken because the Dolphins, Chan Gailey runs a playoff play action run first offensive style. I don't know. I guarantee you 95% of you have not watched a single Dolphin game this year. I don't know if you know this, like Phil Lard was their number one running back. I do not see a way unless they're trading for like Le'Veon Bell or something weird like that or drafting in the first round of running back. I do not see an offense in which, will turn around suddenly with rookie running backs. I, I mean, this off, I don't know what Chad O'Shea was expected to do. This offense had, he turned players under Gase that were no names into pretty solid players. And if you come and say that, oh, well, Kenyon Drake absolutely tr- was destroying it with the Cardinals the minute they let him go. That's offensive scheme. That's not not using talent. The offensive line for the Cardinals is definitely better than the Dolphins. The Dolphins have traded away every valuable player they had in this one season. The only players that they have left that would give Dolphin fans hope would be they have Devontae Parker had an sensational year. Jacecki has developed in ways that you thought after the first year that he was just done. And they don't have a. They have Josh Rosen, who is not going to play a single snap for them. He'll probably get traded once they draft Tua or Herbert or whoever they fall in love with at the five. And then what do you? Gailey has never, like he's he's been in the NFL forever. He's had one good season as an offensive coordinator in the top top five. It was with Pittsburgh in like 1997. He has never led an offense that finished in the top five in scoring, counting in both seasons as a head coach or coordinator in his entire career outside of that Pittsburgh year. So I don't know what the Dolphins are doing. I guarantee you if Josh McDaniels leaves the Patriots, Chad O'Shea will be heading into his spot within an hour. And if the Dolphins just let that go to hire a coach, like Chad O'Shea is young. Chad Gailey is old. I do not see the logic. They really must think they're going all in next year, which I thought this was a rebuild. I must be sorely mistaken. He's also been out of the league for three years. You do the math. It doesn't make sense. I'd love to see the math that came up with that decision.
All right. So now we're going to go into the playoff rounds. We're going to do wild card weekend. I originally was going to do a format that was going to be essentially like I would predict the whole thing in one sit. But when I thought about it on paper, it just doesn't make sense. Like it's not in, like if I get it wrong and then next week we it's a different matchup and I already spoke about this hypothetical one, that just doesn't make sense. And if you ask me right now what four teams I expect to be in the championship, I honestly can't tell you. I feel like this is a very tough year. It's very even. It's been a great year to watch football. It's not like every year where there's like one great team and one team that could maybe beat them. The NFC is pretty solid, and the AFC is probably the best and most even it's been in a lot of years. I can honestly tell you I think the AFC overall has better teams than the NFC by a mile. Not saying like the 49ers, Saints, and Packers are bad teams. They are great teams. I'm saying like top to bottom, even. I would say the the AFC is definitely a higher cream of the crop than the NFC. Because you, you can tell me right now, who would you rather be? Who, what team is better to you, the Eagles or the Titans? I would probably say the Titans. Anyway, let's just get into it. The first game, this is weird though because the AFC is all day Saturday and the NFC is all day Sunday. I can't remember a time which that ever happened. It's pretty insane. So the Bills in Texas will start us off. This First off, the Bills defense is extremely legit. I was at Thanksgiving. I was extremely questionable about this record. It was very, very high. I thought they didn't play that many good teams and they didn't. They got into the tougher part of their schedule and they showed that they are a legitimately good team. They entered week 17 and num- week 17 ranked number five in defensive DVOA and number two in points allowed. And besides the Eagles, I view the Texans honestly as the second weakest team in the playoffs. I know, like talent wise on offense and defense, you're probably like, that's insane. But really, if you think about it and you look at the Texans schedule, they are probably the most up and down team that's in the playoffs right now. There are very interesting matchups in this game though. Because, well, also going back to the schedule thing, the thing about the Texans is you don't know which version of the Texans you're going to get because you can get the Texans that played extremely well against the Falcons, that played extremely well against the Patriots, or you can get the same Texans team, let's not forget, that got absolutely blown out in Baltimore. I know Baltimore's the number one seed, but if you're a playoff team, you should at least be somewhat competitive in that game. And you also need to keep in mind that they also lost to Denver by, I think, 16 points. I don't know. I know, Denver, you're probably thinking, wow, that was a good playoff team. Drew Locke was insane in that game. Uh, No, that's not the case. It's kind of concerning that you lose a game by that much. The interesting things to look for in this game is the Hopkins on Tredavious White is a huge matchup for them because it's expected that Will Fuller is going to be out for this game. And DeAndre Hopkins, honestly, as weird as it sounds, even though he's the one that most defenses look at, when Will Fuller is in for the Texans, Hopkins plays at a level in which you don't see otherwise. He goes, he the field opens up for him. You saw it really against that Tampa team, where he was like it was him and Kenny Stills, and DeAndre Hopkins was absolutely shut down in that game. I I would know because I had him for fantasy football, and I was extremely pissed when his stat line was like three for eighteen. Um, so Tredavious White, for those who don't know, who he made the Pro Bowl this year for Buffalo. He is their best corner. He logged 16, six interceptions, 16 would be out of this world, and 17 pass breakups. But I would really hope that DeAndre Hopkins will explode in this game because he had a weaker rest because he didn't play last week. They played their bench against uh, the Titans. 
And they he also just, as I previously stated, did terrible against Tampa. So I would really hope this would be a huge DeAndre Hopkins game. If I was doing like a DraftKings type lineup this week, I would probably put Hopkins in it. Another big matchup to watch in this game is probably Watson against the Bills. The Bills' defense is one of the best. The Bills didn't get here because of an explosive offense. They got here because of an offense that was good enough to keep them in games while the defense was able to win them and get get them in great field position to have Josh Allen just do what he needs to do, keep the ball in his hands, keep the ball away from the defense. If the Bills can keep Watson in the pocket, they have a really good chance of winning this game. That's what the Ravens did. And they blew out the Texans. And this team is so identical. Not in terms of offensive talent, but the defensive dominance that the Ravens and the Bills have to me is extremely similar. And Watson's about as good as it gets outside the pocket. So Buffalo's best chance to win is to, as I said, uh, keep Watson inside the pocket, which you can do with a good pass rush. And they do have that. Edmonds was insane this year, so he's definitely the player to watch. Uh, another big thing for them is, for Buffalo, is uh, Devin Singletary versus the Texans' D. I know everyone always thinks as the Texans' defense as, like, this stout defense. J.J. Watt, you can say, is coming back, but at the same time, he had a torn pectoral and hasn't played football for a bit. But that also being said, J.J. Watt is an absolute animal, and he is going to absolutely terrorize Whoever's in his way, I would expect. I wouldn't really expect him to go in at a percentage that you would think would hurt the team. Um, so the Texans right now are surrendering 4.8 yards per rush. Devin Singletary has absolutely taken over the running back job from Frank Gore, the timeless man who never seems to ever slow down, even though he, when you watch him, it's not really like you're watching a man in his youth. It's kind of like he bullies his way through all of the yards he's gained. So I would expect Devin Singletary to have a really good game. And low-key, the uh, Texans defense, uh, not Texas defense, uh, Carlos Hyde, the running back for the Texans, has been really good this year. Uh, He, for the first time I think ever, surpassed 1,000 yards. I would expect him to go back to the um, Texans after this season because they basically revamped their entire – oh, they have Lamar Miller. Lamar Miller might also come back. That would be a really good running back trio now that I think about it. But that's as I – I'm getting off topic. Uh, with Will Fuller expected to be out, Kenny Stills is going to have to really pick up the pace. But it seems like Will Fuller and Kenny Stills, when all three are healthy, will alternate which one decides to have the big game. I would honestly probably expect Kenny Stills to be the leading receiver in this game, but I would expect DeAndre Hopkins to post a better stat line than he did when they played Tampa. I know it's the most popular upset pick, but the Texans are extremely inconsistent. And I believe that four of the six losses that the Bills have had in their 10-6 and six record, I understood. Two being the Pats and two divisional, very close games that, would scare, that scared Patriots fans basically in both games. And they played the Ravens, which are the best team in the... I think they're the best team in the NFL. And the Jets. In Week 17, they lost. They played none of their starters. And they lost like 13-7, I think. I don't... I wasn't expecting... I, I won't even count that game. They To me, they're basically like 10 and 5. I say Bills 24, Texans 20. All right. This is the game that I'm very, I was very, very like flip-floppy on, kind of conflicted with my fandom of being a Patriots fan and just reality as a whole. The Titans at the Patriots, uh, I call it the hot versus the not. 
The Patriots have lost three of their five games to end the 2019 season, and every loss has been more ugly than the last, with the icing on the cake being the Dolphins-Patriots game in Foxborough, where they needed to lock up the bye by beating a Dolphins team that were, I really, they were giving it their all that game, and I don't know who to point the finger at for this game, but it just was an ugly performance all around. You knew it, was, it, it did not look good when Brady threw that ball over Michelle's head, and you didn't know if it was – I don't think me or Michelle or anyone besides Tom knew where that ball was going because it could have either been him or the wide receiver behind him. I don't know who it was off the top of my head. I'm assuming it was Mohamed Sanu or Dorsett. Um, even though Brady still threw for over 4,000 yards, this season has been extremely questionable for Brady but because he's ranked 60 – he had a 60.8% completion percentage, which is not not at all good for Brady. 6.6 yards per completion, a passer rating of 88, and 24 touchdowns. These were all some of the lowest marks in his entire career, which is expected with age. But I also think it's really just a, due to the talent deficit that they had a wide receiver. There was a point in week two against the Miami Dolphins where the Patriots were having a roster of Edelman, Josh Gordon, Demarius Thomas, and Antonio Brown all on the same roster with Nikhil Harry coming back supposedly by week nine. That has dwindled all the way down to a wide receiver core of Edelman, Jacoby Myers, Mohamed Sanu, Philip Dorsett, and Nikhil Harry. It's clear. The recipe for success has always been shown. It's very Everyone knows the recipe for success for beating Tom Brady. It's get pressure and force someone other than Edelman and James White to beat you through the air. The issue for Tennessee for this game, though, is they don't deliver that much pressure. This is a sad statistic for Tennessee fans. Logan Ryan, their cornerback, has the third most sacks on the team in this year. But also, the Patriots' defense hasn't looked much better. Even though they are the number one defense in 2019, they are struggling in the latter half of this season. They have, they have allowed only 14.1 points per game, which is two points less than the next closest team. They are the number two team against the pass with 180.4 yards allowed per contest and just six rushing attempts. Their rush defense is still six best in the NFL, but the issue is that the, the absolute strength of this Tennessee Titans team is Derrick Henry. And I know I just said that they're the sixth best rushing team in the NFL, but they just gave up 136 yards against Joe Mixon like two or three weeks ago. Derrick Henry just scored 211 yards in three scores last week. So in classic Derrick Henry fashion, he's heading on fire going into the postseason, which is not a really good thing for the Patriots. Um, so really the Patriots need Brady, and Brady needs anyone other than Julian Edelman to show up who is extremely injured whether it's a concussion that he's hiding, that I'm pretty sure he is, a shoulder injury that he's had for like the past few weeks, someone else needs to show up. Dorsett, every year, starts at the top of the depth chart. He looks like he's going to be a key part of this team, and every week he gets less and less snaps, and sooner or later you forget he kind of exists. Mohamed Sanu was supposed to be the saving grace of this wide receiver core when we traded to for him from Atlanta for a second-round pick, and honestly, that second-round pick would have been better on Des Bryant, I think, at this point, than Mohamed Sanu. Mohamed Sanu, I think, left his hands on the flight over to Foxborough. He has not learned how to catch a football. He has gotten so much worse. I do not understand if this, how the scheme could absolutely... I know, Patriots offense, super complex. Chad Ochocinco couldn't figure it out. Chad Ochocinco was washed when we had him. Mohamed Sanu is not washed. He is pretty decent and he just decided he just doesn't want to catch anymore 
So Tom is losing trust in him. He has trust with Dorsett, but Dorsett doesn't play a lot. Nikhil Harry has shown up in the past few weeks with a couple of flashes. He had a touchdown taken away from him in Buffalo. He's just been a big body. The way that this Patriots offense will take off in the passing game in this postseason is that they need Nikhil Harry with his massive frame and big body to play bully ball in a Gronk-esque style of the game that will help this team win. Another thing for the Patriots that's very big for them is this their three-headed passing rushing game that they have between Rex Burkhead, James White, and Sony Michelle. The Patriots last year, when they had entered into the postseason, were known they decided they switched from a, a pass first to a rush first and had their defense help them close out games. They needed to do that again this year, probably. And they really tried in the past three games to get their running backs back involved in the season. Burkhead and Michelle were both doing pretty poorly when the season started. And by the end, they were doing extremely well. They really need – for Brady to be successful, he can't be throwing the ball like 30 to 5 to 40 times. He should be throwing like 30 times a game. That's it. He needs to just manage the game. If he's a quarterback that great, he has the mind. He knows how to break down the defense. Just have him manage it and have the running backs really step up and take this team where it needs to go. The thing that's pretty wild is that Birkin and Michelle over the past few weeks have been heavily involved in the offense's success. Michelle in the past few weeks has regained form. Burke had had the big game against Cincinnati. Michelle actually in the past few weeks against the Bengals, he had 89 yards. Against Buffalo, he had 96 yards. And against the Dolphins, he had 74 yards. Roughly averaging around, I'd say, about 4.4 yards a carry in those three games. I would also say that Burkhead will step up in the playoffs. He did so last year. James White will have to step up also. I liked this formation that I saw them run a few times throughout the, the season where they would have Burkhead and Michelle right on the sides of Brady, and they would have both of them go out on the side. So they're, you're going to get a linebacker mismatch in one of those sets. And if you can just find the right set, that's an automatic first down. I mean, their yards average per catch is they're both in the eight. They're both like 8.6 yards a catch on average. I'm no mathematician. Those are scream first downs to me if you can just get the proper spacing and the proper matchups. Ryan Tannehill is also a big factor in this game and he has been insanely hot for them taking this team from what looked like another year they took him from a year of not being nine and seven for the first time in four years to being a team nine and seven again which for titans fans i think they're fine making the playoffs if it means they're nine and seven again which good for them but at the same time ryan Tannehill has a lot of experience playing the patriots but they also have a lot of experience playing him. A.J. Brown is going to be a player they're looking at. Honestly, also Corey Davis might be a big player. I could see a way in which that they put Gilmore on Corey Davis and do the Devin McCourty and Jonathan Jones spy over uh, A.J. Brown. They did that with Tyreek Hill last year. And A.J. Brown is not Tyreek Hill, but he plays essentially the same way where he's just going to try to beat you on the big plays and on the end arounds where they – put him in motion and hand it off to him around the back. They did that two weeks ago against the Saints. Um, I see a, this. I see a way that this Patriots defense is going to harass Tannehill all night in a way where they won't have big passing plays developed. So if Tennessee does win this game, it's going to have to be Derrick Henry. It's going to have to be Derrick Henry. They're going to have to put a lot of pressure on Brady, which will be really hard given the talent they have. I, I know everyone thinks the Patriots dynasty will end tomorrow. I would say if it is ending, it's ending a week from tomorrow or Sunday. I'm going to say the Patriots win this game 23-21. to 
Uh, now we're going to shift over to the NFC, and we're going to start with the Seattle Seahawks at the Eagles. This Russell-led Hawks team is playing a banged-up Eagles team that hobbled off in a divisional run to end the season at 9-7. and seven. Honestly, I thought the Cowboys were going to be more of a challenge, but I wanted them to lose so they would fire Garrett. This is actually the only matchup in wildcard weekend that the two teams previously played this season, and it was in Week 12 where Seahawks won 17-9. Both these teams were much healthier at that time, but so it's not really going to be something you can kind of look at and make your judgments based off of it. I mean, Seattle always is... I. I think it's time to put the nail in the coffin for Seattle being a defensive-oriented team. They're not. They ranked 8th in total yards allowed with 374 while ranking 14th in passing yards and 4th in the NFL with rushing yards allowed. They also they score 25.3 points per game to rank 9th in the NFL for offense. And they always struggle. I mean... They aren't good in any facet of their defense. They give up a lot of total yards. They give up a lot of passing yards. They give a lot of rushing yards. This Eagles defense is actually playing the better of the two. They've allowed 17 points or fewer in their seven of their last nine games. I would say, even though this is Carson Wentz's first playoff game, you wouldn't think it is, but it is. Nick Foles has been the only quarterback playing for them at <laughs> during the playoffs. It's going to be interesting to see Carson Wentz go up against the defense. That is honestly very beatable, but he's going with a cast of characters that you would not have known like 10 weeks ago, like J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, Boston Scott. Dallas Goddard's pretty well known if you play fantasy, but other than that, you probably don't know any of these players. If they win, if they win this game, hypothetically, they'd get Deshaun Jackson back for the next week, but the big matchup, is going to be between DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and this Eagles secondary. The Eagles secondary is so banged up and so pretty bad. I mean, Bradley Roby, I think, is their best corner on this roster right now. I don't have the roster in front of me. But I wouldn't say that (laughs) – I I would be a betting man and say that these two wide receivers will probably at least have over 100 yards combined, I'd hope – 150 if it's like a, a game that I expect them to have. Another big matchup for them is the the running backs for um the Eagles have gotten increasingly better. Miles Sanders looked like a like a huge bust that in this they sent a second round pick on him at running back and he has really picked up the pace and become a really good workhorse back for them when they needed it. But also Boston Scott has come out of nowhere and has been an absolute beast for them. He scored three touchdowns last week. Miles Sanders left in like the second quarter. And he just took over. And Eagles fans love Boston Scott. They love this team. They think it's like the grittiest team they've ever had in their entire life. They also said that when they beat the Patriots. So I guess you got to make up your mind on what team you like. If I were you, I would take the team that beat the Patriots because this team is not going far just due to injury, not due to anything else. This uh, also, the reason that this matchup is important is because I don't know if you remember, but Kenyon Drake absolutely torched this defense, the Seattle defense in week 16. And I can see a way in which that both these running backs have similar days. I would say Sanders would have a really good game that would be similar to Drake's because they're both like very good in spread offenses, and they love running spread with Miles Sanders. Sanders and Scott will allow for Wentz to not really have much pressure against the pass because, well, much pressure for him to pass because they're going to dominate the script if they're winning this game. And Miles Sanders has the third 
best second down, third down rushing average in the league among running backs over the last seven games. He is averaging six yards a rush ever since that started. Overall, both these teams are extremely injured. And when I see it, the lights will shine extremely bright on Wentz. And Russell Russell Wilson is simply the, was my second favorite in the MVP race this year. I know Lamar Jackson just ran away with it at the end of the season. I do not see a way in which Russell Wilson will run away this game. I'm not going to say anything about Marshawn Lynch because if he runs in for a one-yard score, Seahawks fans are going to be like, I knew this guy was rejuvenated. He did not look rejuvenated last week. I mean, he had that one run from the three where he hurtled over inside. But, like, it's he's old, and he's, like, in really good shape because he was training for MMA. But at the same time, like, I would expect his body to, like, get beaten up pretty quickly from not being accustomed to getting hit for, like, a year. I'm going to say this game is Seattle 27, Eagles 17. I There's a part of me that thinks this Seattle team could be special. I see a way in which they go from here into San Francisco, beat San Francisco, and then play in the NFC Championship game. I, I, I honestly see it. You could put it down right now. If they lose, that's fine. I'm, I'm prepared to look stupid for that. I fell in love with the Seahawks team last year. I thought they were going to beat the Rams. They didn't. I thought that my my Seahawks hype ended very quickly. I'm I'm ready to just do that again. I I, I don't I'm not going to give up on this team. The last game we're going to talk about is the Vikings at the Saints. They're thir- the the Saints are 13 and 3 and have to serve a wild card game. I don't know if anyone realizes how ridiculous that the 13 and 3 team has to play on a wild card weekend. They're the third team since 1999, 1999 to play this. That's ridiculous. There should be like some type of thing where you just don't have to play if you're 13 and 3. Can we just have the Eagles or why do the Eagles have a home <laughs> like oh god. They they should just have someone just get an I don't know how it would work. It just doesn't seem fair. The Saints have already been so screwed in the past playoff games and if they lose this game they will be irate. They lost in the Minneapolis Miracle. They lost to the no call for pass interference and if they lose this game all hell will break loose that a 13-3 and team lost in week in the first week of wildcard weekend. Good news for them is they're playing Kirk Cousins, though, who is probably struggled the most under the big lights of any quarterback I've seen in recent memory, who gets all these opportunities. I know Kirk Cousins finished 2019 with a passer rating of 107.4, which ranked fourth in the NFL, and is the second highest by Vikings quarterback in an entire season. However, it's Kirk Cousins, and he is known to absolutely blow the biggest opportunities at the worst times. Good news for them is they have Dalvin Cook, though, who, despite missing two games, finished fourth in the NFL with 13 rushing touchdowns. He also ranks seventh in the NFL with 1,654 scrimmage yards, despite, as I previously stated, missing the last two weeks of the season, but with a shoulder injury. I don't know if that shoulder is fully healed. He's going to play the whole game probably, but shoulder injuries, for those who don't know, are extremely easily aggravated. So the minute that shoulder pops again, I don't know how effective he's going to be at carrying the ball. Also, the, the, the Saints head into this contest as one of the healthiest playoff teams. The Minnesota secondary, Xavier Rhodes has been I'm only pointing him out because the stats just show he is one of the main reasons that this team has had terrible coverage issues in the NFL and has allowed 23 passing touchdowns against them. And now the Vikings are going to face Drew Brees, NFL receiving leader Michael Thomas, who broke the record for most catches in a season, and the Saints' explosive offense at home 
for New Orleans in the Superdome. I don't see how this defense – I don't know how this game plan could even work in which the Vikings' bending defense is going to hold up against this juggernaut of an offense. They were good with Teddy Bridgewater. What makes you think they're not going to be better with Hall of Fame precision passer Drew Brees? Alvin Kamara has been the issue, if you had issues, for the Saints all season. But he stepped up in the past two games with 167 total yards and four touchdowns. If he gets going, this game is over. Because the Saints can already pass at will with a struggling running back. Imagine what they're going to do when their running game and passing game is at full force. Oh my god. The Vikings have got the worst matchup of any wildcard team, I think. They're just at every mismatch is exactly to the strength of the Saints. It's just ridiculous. The Saints have allowed 91.3 yards per game on the year overall, but just 78.7 yards per game on the ground in their last three games and just 3.9 yards per game. Part of the reason they did that with solid run numbers against them this year, though, if you're going to like nitpick their stats, is that they were ahead in like every game they played. They rarely played from behind, so who's going to run out the clock when they're going to have to pass the whole time? So it's kind of a deceiving stat. I guess we'll see. When if they don't get off to an explosive lead, but also on the opposite end of the stick, the Vikings have just not been good against the run either. They allowed 134.7 yards per game over the last three with Alvin Kamara absolutely on fire. So if you do the math, you got Alvin Kamara plus terrible rush defense over the past few games with Alvin Kamara being on fire does not equal any recipe for success. Adam Thielen is now healthy, which means with Dalvin Cook, Kirk Cousins has all of his weapons back. The pass defense of New Orleans is also pretty good at home, but they struggle overall. So I guess the one way they'll beat them if Dalvin Cook just isn't effective is if Kirk Cousins plays the best game he's ever played in his entire life. And he has to because he gets paid as if he's a top five quarterback and he finished fourth in passer rating, but I don't know if he's going to finish the season in the top four with the, the the championship games. Overall, the offense of the Saints is a juggernaut, and even when the run game is not at full capacity with Alvin Kamara back in his normal form for now, I really see that there's no way that this Vikings defense can hold off the Saints offense from scoring as much as I see them doing, and I see them scoring a decent chunk. I would see... I could see at the end of the first quarter that this score is like 14-0 and the, that everyone just is absolutely stunned. Another big reason I do not trust this team is that Kirk Cousins at the helm does not give me the most confidence in the world. I know it sounds like I'm bashing Kirk Cousins, but I have no reason not to. He just underperforms when you least expect it. Case Keenum did better with the Vikings than I think Kirk has, and they got rid of him as an upgrade. I could see the Saints blowing this game as a previously stated quickly out of the water. And overall, I think that this is just going to be a mistake. I think this is a really not a good recipe for the Vikings. I think the Saints have every chance in the world to win. I'm going to say Saints 31, Vikings 21. So just for a quick recap, I got the Bills beating the Texans. I got the Patriots beating the Titans. I have the Seahawks beating the Eagles. And I have the Saints beating the Vikings. So the way that this I have it lined up for divisional rounds would be it'd be the Patriots playing the Chiefs, the Ravens playing the Bills, the Packers playing the Seahawks, 
and the, no, the Packers playing the Saints and the Seahawks playing the 49ers. That sounds like a pretty interesting divisional round to me. And with that, I think we're going to wrap things up for today. Uh, this, as I said, was a pilot episode, kind of a sorts, trying to figure it out. I think it went pretty well, but I can't speak for myself. You guys can comment. You guys can uh, go on Twitter at the uh, Extended Cut. Tell me how the episode went. If you thought it was good, bad, what you would change. What are some things you'd like to hear? I'm going to try to get this to develop. It's not going to just be a stagnant thing where this is the same format. It's going to change a little bit as time passes. But for now, this was, a, I think, a pretty decent startup. And until I'm going to come back uh, next week, I think I'm going to try to do two next week. I'm not 100% sure. But until then, I think this is a good time to live off. And uh, thanks for listening.